Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Justin Black. Justin is a former foster youth and co-founder of Redefining Normal. Redefining Normal is an organization that is based in Michigan, but they do provide their services and workshops all over the country. Welcome, Justin. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be on and just excited to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you, too. I really want to hear your story. I'm looking forward to it. And generally, how we get these things started, Justin, is I ask our guests to please, if you would, share a little bit of your own personal background. And how is it that you and Alexis came to be involved with the foster care system? Yeah, of course. So again, my name is Justin Black. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and my wife is from Flint, Michigan. I entered the system at nine years old. And what I usually contributed to is there's a history of mental health issues in my family and generations of drug abuse on my mom's side, generations of domestic violence on my dad's side. And so you kind of take a step back and see generational trauma on both sides of my family which eventually led me to entering the foster care system at nine years old. And Alexis, I believe, entered at 13 years old. So how we met was in Western Michigan University at a program called the CETA Scholars Program for Foster Youth to Higher Education. And with that program, it's for Foster Youth to Higher Education. And we met during the summer early transition week. And basically the program is, it provides a campus coach for those in the program it guides you through. It's basically like a support system for if you need to know where resources are on campus, just to check in on you. And for students who basically don't have the resources, like a family or parents available to them, this program serves as that support system, just like a great network of people and people who are guiding you and many different things, providing resources and things over the holidays, as far as housing and food providing guidance during the semester and so many other things. That's the program that we met and we just kind of took off from there and just established a great relationship and now married with a child. So (laughs) crazy how life works. That's wonderful. So Michigan, it's my understanding, has one of the better university program systems, if you will, for former foster youth is my understanding. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Western Michigan, when they created the CETA Scholars Program, it was one of its kind. And they actually do trainings now for other universities to kind of establish a system or a program for foster youth in their state. And within the state of Michigan, majority of the foster youth who go to college go to Western Michigan because of the CETA Scholars Program. And they've really defied the odds with the only 3% of foster youth graduate college. But the numbers for CETA, I don't have the exact number in my head, but the numbers skyrocket are way higher for them when it comes to helping foster youth graduate college. And they've done a great job with that. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And you know what I find to be interesting and I'm very glad of is that it seems like there are more and more college and university programs like that. Community colleges, there are some networks of community colleges like in Virginia that have support systems like this that are dedicated to young people who have aged out of foster care. And I just love knowing that that seems to be a growing trend. I love the trend as well. I think a lot of people are becoming more aware 
And we'll more foster youth being active and hands-on with establishing these programs and letting our voice be heard. I think these programs are able to be very strategic in how they support youth entering college and transitioning out of college as well. Yep, exactly. So how is it that you and Alexis, when so many young people from foster care don't get into college, I know there's a high percentage, if I remember correctly, one study I read is something like 70% of young people in foster care want to go to college, but only about maybe 7 to 10% get in and then only about 3% actually get the degree. So what is it that enabled you and Alexis to be successful beyond the SETA Scholars Program? How were you able to even get into college and do as well as you have? Yeah, it's so many things that we could attribute our success to. Before entering college, uh, around 16 years old, I entered into a group home that was funded by the church and just had some amazing mentors and some incredible people who even looked like me who were successful. And during that process, I mean, before that, I wanted to go to college, but actually I had a 1.9 GPA and (laughs) I was like, I want to go, but it's just not realistic for me to go. So I was kind of giving up on that idea of going to college and almost being successful in general. But because of the people, the resources the, and the confidence they instilled in me, the mentors from the church, because of the, the people around me who instilled confidence in me at this time, I started to work hard, not only just myself, but for them. So I wouldn't disappoint them. And they said things to me like, you're not only going to college, but you're going to graduate with a 4.0. They were thinking about what I was going to do after college before I even was accepted into any university. And they were looking five, 10 years ahead because of just what they saw in me. It just really changed my life. With that being said, I try to have that mindset in general, not only just thinking about the next step of life, but five, 10 years down the line. And I think that a lot of foster youth, because we are in survival mode, we aren't thinking 10, 20 years down the line. We're thinking about the next day, trying to survive the next day. They really helped me think about legacy and thinking down the line and being very strategic about the decisions and things that I do. So I would say as far as supporting foster youth and being successful, entering college, successful post-college, it may sound cliche, but a lot of it starts with mindset and thinking one or two, three steps ahead and trying to establish a community that can hold you accountable when life happens and crisis happens and you're not able to figure things out on your own. I can't speak enough about community and have people around you who mainly not only just support you, maybe physically with housing or financially or anything like that, but really can support you mentally because the mental aspect of it, if you are lost or you've given up mentally, then it doesn't matter how much you invest into the lives of youth with housing or financially. Of course, those are important and necessary, but if someone has given up mentally on themselves, then there's nothing you could do or nothing you can invest. But I think that's the starting point of it all before any physical resource. You know, I was just jotting down a couple of statements here that came to mind. Within the mindset that you're talking about, the difference is can versus can't, future versus now, and we versus me. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I would definitely say that is true. Yeah, and so many people tell young people in foster care, oh, you can't do that. Exactly, yeah. You know, I mean, goodness gracious, (laughs) just cut the kids off at the knees there, why don't you? You have to have that encouragement that you mentioned before and having that future perspective of, yeah, you can. Let's talk about how you get there. What are the steps you have to take? 
And that's the attitude that we need, not only from the youth, but of the people around them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We always preach that we are the average of the five people we surround ourselves with. And the thing is, when we do workshops and trainings, we help youth and students establish their core principles and values first. And a lot of times, of course, they're going to pick positive things that they want to be a part of their foundation. But the thing is, you can create these positive ideas for yourself, but then you go back into the same household or the same community of people who think completely opposite of you. And then so the next step is helping them identify how they can surround themselves with people who are a reflection of the core principles and values that they've established for themselves and being super intentional about that. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think so many young people in foster care struggle with academics? For example, you mentioned you had a low GPA. Why is it? Because that, it's not uncommon. Why do you think that is? I think many traditional students, when I say traditional, I mean people who come from a two-parent household, a mom and a dad. And when it comes to youth who've experienced foster care, a lot of us, and I remember I've had pretty good grades most of my life. And I remember when I had a big dip in my GPA and things really went downhill was when I made like two or three transitions in a matter of like maybe a year, a year and a half. And you think about like so many issues at home, when that's on your mind, thinking about issues at home, thinking about your living situation, kids from traditional households, they don't have to think about housing instability. They don't have to think about food and some of these basic necessities being ripped away or being not present in your life. So for youth in foster care, you have to think if your basic needs aren't met, then how can you think about education and higher education? And that's like something way beyond what you could think of. And a lot of them may have to drop out and may have to do illegal or unhealthy things for money or for food or whatever it may be. And some of them are experiencing some type of abuse or traumatic experiences at home that they may live in. So education is on the back burner. It's not even something that's on the front of a lot of youth's mind because they're trying to survive or get through the next day or overcome the abuse that they're going through. So I feel like that's why education is not really on their mind, but education can be something that saves them and elevates them from the current situation that they're in. But they don't understand that because the basic needs are not being met. And if you're not getting those basic needs met, then you can't focus on education. Right. Another interesting, I don't know if I'll call it a reaction, but coping mechanism is the young people who take the academics as the one thing they have control over in their life, because that's what happened to me. My sister and I went into foster care in 10th grade. And when we were young, education was really pushed and getting good grades to the extreme, in fact. And then when we were put in the foster care system, that attitude was still there. But it also, in my mind, was I can control my grades. I can control how much I study. And for me, that was where I found validation. That was where I found control, even if everything around me, and I went to four different high schools, different middle schools, everything around me was a little chaotic. At least I could control academics. And I find at least when I talk with people who run programs working with these youth, that there's a small percentage of young people who kind of have a similar way of coping. Yeah, no, that does make sense. And for Alexis, she always tells me that was her way of coping. She focused in our education and school is kind of her safe space. 
we would eat lunch, not with the other students, but with her teachers. And those are kind of her people and just people who knew her situation, people who loved her and people who were there for her. And she still has a bunch of relationships with teachers in high school to this day. So education was definitely a safe space for her. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I had a similar experience in that I didn't really make friends when I was bouncing from school to school, but I did get along with the adults. Exactly. Yeah. And I found a, a similar thing. And I didn't think of it from the safety perspective, but maybe that was it. Yeah, because, I mean, teachers, I mean, they're supposed to be there to help understand what students are going to to a degree. And unfortunately, a lot of kids and students your age, especially with foster youth who needs to kind of mature quicker than maybe their peers, they don't really understand those situations that they're going through. They don't understand housing, no housing, survival, and things like that. So it's really hard to connect with probably your peers on that level. But if you can talk to adults who have life experiences or just there to really be intentionally supportive, then you can maybe feel more comfortable. And that's what I would say is probably what a lot of foster youth have gone through when it comes to building relationships with teachers. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. When you left foster care and you went into college, were there things that you had to relearn in that transition? And I'm sure a lot of foster youth have to do the same, but I'm curious for you and Alexis, what is it that you had to relearn? One of the big things that I would say I had to relearn and both of us had to relearn is the definition of family. We had to redefine so many things in our lives, which is why we have the Redefining Normal book and the Redefining Normal company. We've had to redefine the definition of love, definition of family, and so many other things that we grew up learning about that wasn't exactly truthful. We grew up learning that family was family regardless of how much people hurt you, how much if they physically assault you, no matter what they say to you. Family is family no matter what. But in foster care, we had the opportunity to kind of choose our family and redefine that. And we redefined family through our spiritual lens, through people who were supportive of us and just loving us. People who could hold us accountable as well, but not just a crush, but people who could hold us accountable but also love us and support us and be there for us in many different ways. Through foster care, we had to redefine that. And as we transition out, I still had relationships with my biological family and I still had to figure out a way to navigate. How do I navigate these relationships with biological family? And I had to learn boundaries, which is another huge thing that I had to learn. Boundaries of people that you love but you can't give to them in certain ways. Like I have to protect my emotional health and my mental health and Fast forward to now, when I have a child that has to protect certain things in the family that we have right now from the ideas and the cultural environment of my biological family sometimes. So it's a balance, but there were many things that needed to be redefined and learned and processed through as we were in foster care and especially transitioning out. Yeah, I can certainly understand that challenge of navigating the family of origin, because we went through that, right? We went through years of not speaking with our parents. And then when we decided as an adult to try to reestablish that relationship, it was a challenge because you have to think, and of course, it's not the same for every young person coming out of foster care, but you have to think, I love this person because they're my mother, my father, but I don't really like being around them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how do you reconcile those two? That's difficult. 
Yeah, I think it goes to the point of self-love first. So the command that says we have to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, a lot of people don't fully understand how to love yourself. If you allow yourself to be abused and mistreated, then you're not actually loving yourself. I think in order to love yourself, sometimes you have to create specific boundaries in order to protect your mental and emotional and spiritual health. Sometimes it means to cut people off. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But I think just allowing people access to certain things and not other things, allowing people to contact you during certain periods and not always seeing people. Sometimes it's important for me not to see biological family for a long time or be around them often and be around them in certain settings when it's safe and comfortable, but not in other settings where there may be drug abuse or alcohol abuse and other things like that. So it is very strategic in setting those boundaries and boundaries, I believe, is directly tied to self-love and understanding that. I agree. And I think it's an acceptance, too, of the new relationship might be different than what you would want. Exactly. Yeah. With that person in that role, like a mother or father, uncle, grandmother, whoever, it might be different than you would hope. But if you can accept that, then it can still be good in the end. For us over the years, we did reestablish those relationships to a point where I felt like it was a good relationship. It wasn't the same as one would want with mom. But it still was okay. Exactly. Yeah. A good relationship is a good relationship. A good relationship with like a spouse that you see every day, you talk to every day, may be different from a parent or someone else you may see and you may not talk to them. You may talk to them once a month. You know, that that's also a good relationship, but just uniquely for you and that person. So, Right. The other thing that I wanted to touch on from what you shared earlier is the idea that there's a new definition of family. And that's very true. Family can be anybody, really. Like you were saying, people hold us accountable and love us, but that takes time. And so when you have young people bouncing around, they don't have the time to really build that new family. They don't really have a chance until after they leave foster care. Now, I'm not saying every foster kids bounce around. That's not the case, but in many cases it is. So they have to wait until they leave foster care to build that new family. And so it takes patience and it takes, I think, some proactivity too on the youth's part or maybe getting involved in a program that has some kind of mentor program. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the process of understanding it because I think originally your parents are supposed to instill this concept of what family means, what love means. One of the things I've dealt with is that once you don't originally have a healthy idea of what those things mean, then you have to go through the redefining process. But some people never really can step back outside of their bubble and say, okay, this way of operating was unhealthy. It becomes normal. The abuse, the manipulation, whatever it may be that you've experienced becomes normal. And you can't really form relationships outside of the lens that you saw or experienced with your family. So you hop from one abusive relationship with family, maybe to another abusive relationship, maybe in your romantic life. So and it just the cycle continues because it's all you know. It's so important. And with the work we do, we're trying to work on opening people's eyes to how can we all step back? Whether you've grown up in foster care or not, I mean, it's important that we all step back and just say, okay, what areas of my life can I improve on? What areas of my life have I just accepted 
even though it may not be good for not only just me, but for my children and those around me. What have you grown comfortable with accepting and normalizing that it's just not okay? I think we all have to take that step back, but when you're so deep into it, it's hard for you to try to redefine love and redefine family and those things because you're so deep into it and that's all you know. That's an excellent point. I think having somebody outside your circles who can help you think through other possibilities. Exactly. I think that's really important. And I think that's partly why so many of the nonprofit organizations that work with these youth and services like you offer, the speaking engagements, I I think it's important because it does expose young people to other possibilities. No, yeah, definitely. We try to just have these conversations and really work on just challenging people, whether youth, students, adults, professionals, challenging them to really step back and really reevaluate who they are at their core and ask them the tough questions of, am I accepting or doing things because it's comfortable, because it is acceptable in a certain circle? Or am I being super intentional and aware of how my words, my actions impact me, those around me, my children? Am I creating an emotional, mental, and environmental system that is conducive for my children and great-grandchildren? Well, that's the conversations that we want to have. Be able to identify and challenge the generational trauma in order to work towards creating a generational success. Well, I definitely want to hear more about what it is that you do for youth, for the adults who work with the youth. Before we do that, I just wanted to ask real quickly, because we were talking about redefining family and the people who are around you after you leave foster care. What was the most significant support system that got you to this point in your life? Yeah, I mentioned it a little bit before, but you know, I think the church community that I had around me was definitely important. The group home that I lived in, it was funded by the church and there were mentors who came. If I struggling in like my math classes, I was struggling in or just someone teaching me how to drive, helping me get my driver's license and just all these basic life skills that I needed. Having people there to support me and filling that gap of my family not being there, just that environment. And I'm not like at all advocating for group homes or anything like that. Some people may (laughs) think that I'm doing that. I'm not advocating for group homes, but the specific situation that I was in really helped me become the person that I am and instill the confidence in me that I've gotten through many different chapters in my life that were difficult. And as new struggles come on, I have everything I need to get past these new struggles. So that environment really instilled a lot of confidence and love in me. And I can't thank the mentors and the people around me enough. And my house parents at that time for everything that was poured into me at that time and just helping me transition into being a college student and now father and now author, husband, and so many other things. Yeah. I'm fortunate to be able to say a similar thing in that the group home experience that my sister and I had was positive. We were in a treatment center first because there were no beds anywhere else and the house parents were fantastic. It was very strict. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, but, same. Uh, <laughs> But with point systems and everything, it's a different path, but similar elements to it. The key is that it's a community of caring people. Mm -hmm, Exactly. It's a community. Absolutely. Well, now I really want to know about what it is that you do. I know you have a book and I know you do speaking engagements, but help us understand what it is that you and Alexis do. Yeah, of course. So back in 2020, we just had so many mentors and people speaking into our lives. I feel like as people have always just spoken to our lives, what the incredible things that we could do before we even see it. 
And we've had mentors and pastors tell us that you guys need to write a book about your life. And we want us to do that, but something bigger than just us and something more impactful than just talking about our narrative and our story. We were able to come from me living in abandoned houses and homelessness and so many other things and experiences in my life. And I talk about the generational practices on both sides of my family. Coming from those circumstances and as well as Alexis being able to overcome the abuse that she experienced with her biological family and transitioning and so many other things. Coming from where we come from, you know, being a part of the 3% of youth who graduate college and not only just going to college, but really maximizing the experience by both of us combining for 13 study abroads combined, traveling to over 30 countries while in college, creating programs and her getting two degrees while in college and everything. And just all these incredible experiences and both of us coming together as former foster youth, as an interracial couple, just the likelihood of this happening, it seems like this 0.1%. So someone told us that we need to write a book about our lives and just kind of talk about the processes of it all. But we wanted it to be bigger than that. So we wrote a book in 2020 called Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discover Healing, Happiness, and Love. This book is largely about a lot about our personal narrative of journeying through the system, coming together as two former foster youth, and the struggles we had together because of that and what we are creating today, but more or less around the idea of once a person has internalized their trauma and made it a part of their identity, they form families and those families embody that culture of trauma and normalize it within their family. And that family, a lot of times, is a reflection of the community. So in its traumatic culture starts with an individual, then goes to the family, then to a community. In communities, a lot of times normalize trauma with a traumatic culture. So talking about the importance of a person, one person, an individual dealing with their trauma, identifying the generational cycles and saying that they're going to make a difference in their life first. And then going from that to forming a relationship and forming a family and then how that family can impact the community. And using our personal narrative through that and seeing just how important working on yourself is before starting the family. And then because that family is going to impact the community and that community is going to impact the society. And just seeing that the standard that you create for yourself is going to be passed down to your children, sometimes 100 years down the line. So we have to be super intentional about what we do with our lives, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. We have to be super intentional about that. And I would say it is largely what the book is about, detailing our personal narrative. And with the Redefining Normal Company, we embody that fully, identifying generational trauma in order to create generational success. So doing workshops and trainings with youth and students, creating curriculum for them, a nine-part curriculum, along with companion guides. So our companion guide, we take our personal narrative out. We allow youth and students to put their story in, with, do different questions and activities and challenging them in multiple different ways and having presentations for the adults, where there's teachers, professors, foster parents, social workers, caseworkers, and really trying to embody the idea that how impactful an individual can be with changing the trajectory of their lives, but maybe their organization and their environment overall. So being super intentional about that and trying to break it down into practices, routines and strategies and techniques, things that have helped us, but also 
including information and ideas from mental health specialists and social workers that we interacted with and foster parents that we know of, trying to combine our lived experience with that information and deliver something that is impactful for these populations. Wow, that's fantastic. So it sounds like you really try to have people understand and apply the concepts to their own lives, not just presenting theory. Yeah, yeah. And what we try to do in each training, you know, by the end is how can, I mean, everybody's situation is unique, right? Some rooms we're talking to foster parents and in the same room, we're talking to social workers and we may be talking to a potential foster parent or a mentor, but how can, you know, we provide information that is unique to your situation? So we provide general information, sometimes mainly focused on self-care strategies for adults and how they can take care of themselves and surround themselves with community and avoid burnout in whatever field that they're in. And at the end of the presentation, try to apply, support them with pathways that can be strategic and specific for them and make sure that they're being super intentional about what they're doing in their life. So what actionable steps that can they implement into their daily and weekly routine to support them in building family and community in a strategic and healthy way. Yeah, the living intentionally, I think, is really important instead of just letting yourself being carried through life. And having that, it's, again, it's a mindset of living intentionally, and it requires a sense of responsibility, not only for yourself, but for other people. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And in a lot of it, we were huge on intentional living, but also the forgiveness aspect of it all. I think sometimes with myself and Alexis, we can be super intentional about intentionality and this and that. But the forgiveness piece of when you do mess up, you can forgive yourself. You can acknowledge your mistakes, but acknowledge your mistakes in a way that says, this is where I've done wrong and this is how I'm going to improve. And once you do mess up, because we are a human, but once you do mess up, you can forgive yourself and you can work towards doing better in your life. And I think that's just so important. It's something that we're working on and something I work on every day. You know, it's definitely been a struggle, especially with having our baby now. I think forgiveness and working towards doing better is definitely key. And I think resilience is an important part of that because young people who are resilient, I think they can forgive themselves more easily than those who are not. If you have young people who are not resilient, I think bad things happen or they make bad decisions and they start to spiral because they can't see beyond it. Do you build resilience into your programs at all, the concept of resilience? Yeah, yeah. Try to introduce the ideas of resilience. We have actually have a slide that we talk about in every presentation, the characteristics of resilience and saying that it's not something that comes natural where, you know, you're just born resilient. It's something that each person can develop over time. And we break down the concepts of internal locus of control versus external locus of control, meaning that is my life circumstances and where I end up in life and what happens to me, is that being controlled or dependent on what those around me do on the outside? Or is that ultimately up to me? And for foster youth, of course, sometimes our living situation and the things that we do are definitely out of our control. But what we do during our workshops is try to teach people what are the things that you can control. And if you do your best with what the things that you have in your control, then you'll be able to maximize the situation that you're in and ultimately have more say-so in what you're able to do. And we explain the process. You know, during COVID, I was still in college. And when the pandemic happened, I always tell the story of how me and Alexis were emergency evacuated from South Africa. 
because I was there studying and she was my fiance at the time and just went to visit. We were emergency evacuated and that was my senior year of college. And I wanted to get ready to graduate in about four or five months and applied for 200 jobs, didn't couldn't get anything and living with her parents at the time because, <laughs> you know, preparing to graduate and I just felt lost and hopeless. And during the pandemic, you seemingly had no control. But the thing that we could control at that time is we sat down and started writing our book. And we spent every single day at 11 a.m. spending one or two hours writing our book. And that was the only thing that we can control at the time. Maximizing what we could control allowed us to go from just writing our book in her parents' house to the funding from that book, helping us purchase our first home in December 2020. And so we teach those concepts of doing the best of what you can control in a situation that seems out of control for a lot of foster youth and the same for the parents and adults as well. And I think a part of that is making the choices within the framework of your control, because some people, I think, don't value the choices that they make. They externalize problems in their life in many cases. And not to say that things happen don't happen to you. Of course they do. But we have it within our control as to how we respond to that. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. And that how we respond is a choice. No, yeah, I definitely agree with that. All right. Well, who typically hires you then? You've mentioned a lot of different roles. So is it really varied as to who might hire you to come and do a speaking engagement or a workshop? Yeah. So we work with a few different populations. As I've mentioned, we work with different stakeholders in the child welfare system. So programs like the See the Scholars program that are serving students who are maybe disenfranchised, who may be students of color, Black students, maybe students who've experienced the child welfare system. We do workshops for them with being like strategic planning as they transition either into college or out of college, supporting them with their emotional health while they're going through these processes. Different programs, team conferences, different conferences, different organizations that are serving youth and families doing our curriculum or workshops for them. We do a bunch of different events and conferences where we speak, where there are conferences for social workers, conferences for parents and different populations, doing workshops and trainings for the professors themselves at universities because, or teachers at different schools because they have a general approach to maybe how they speak to or build relationships with students being completely unaware of maybe some of their students may have encountered the foster care system. And those maybe who haven't encountered the foster care system still may be going through tough times at home or maybe experiencing homelessness and need support. So how can they build unique relationships with students and ask not questions that are crossing the line, but how can they be supportive of students who have the signs of maybe some type of traumatic experience going on at home? How can they be a supporter of those students as well? So we do workshops around that, including our personal experiences and combining the resources of mental health specialists. So schools, foster care and child welfare organizations. And now with our most recent book, we're writing our first children's book, which is pretty exciting. We've been trying to do more collaborations with elementary schools. Our new children's book coming out is called I Love You More Than Cereal. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love you more than cereal. Mava and dad redefine love largely about how we can love healthily, love others and build healthy relationships through love and breaking that down and trying to teach those concepts to young children as well as the parents. Yeah. It's just been a journey. And a lot of times it's an uphill battle, 
but we're trying to get the word out and we're trying to, we do this work full time now. It's definitely a blessing, but like I said, it's an uphill battle. We're trying yeah. to figure it out as we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully every time you do something like this, a podcast or an interview for who knows, a TV station that you're getting some exposure that might help you be able to get off the ground a little more. So I think it's wonderful what you're doing. It also seems like the messages that you're trying to convey would be more impactful because they're coming from former foster youth. No, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we try to combine live experience with the statistics and the information out there and the education out there. So I definitely feel that we give a different perspective, but we're just here to serve. And wherever we're called to serve, we try to do our best with that. If you've never been to Daniel Kids Conference, the Independent Living Conference in Florida, I highly recommend it. Of course. Yeah, definitely. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be writing that down and checking them out. Yeah, it's huge. It's a huge conference down there every year. It might be the biggest one, and it focuses on the challenges that young people have aging out of foster care and into adulthood. So I think it'd be a fabulous place for you to submit a speaking application or something like that. Well, yeah, of course. Keep the recommendations coming. We'll yeah, definitely right. <laughs> be trying to connect and reach out. All right. I will do that. Well, I have one other quick question for you, but before I do that, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, of course. Feel free to check out our website at read-definingnormal.com. I'm not sure when the podcast will come out, but we are making updates to our, our website. It is a bit outdated. <laughs> so <laughs> sometime, hopefully middle of February, we'll be having an updated website that displays everything that we do. Okay. All of our books, all of our curriculum, workshops, trainings, upcoming events, podcast that we have. Everything that we do will be on there. So check out our website at read-definingnormal.com. Email us at info at read-definingnormal.com. Follow us on Facebook at Redefining Normal. Movement, Instagram, and TikTok is the Blacks Redefine Normal. And check out our book, Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discover Healing, Happiness, and Love, as well as our new children's book coming out, which break down those same things and concepts into making it appropriate and digestible for kids. So that is called I Love You More Than Cereal. Pre-orders are available now, and the official release date is just what happens to be my birthday on April 2nd. And oh, how also exciting. International <laughs> Children's Day as well on April 2nd. So please continue to support. Supporting us allows us to continue to travel and support other foster youth and parents and continue to contribute everything we can. So supporting us with the pre-order process, with the children's book, all of our work allows us to continue to do what we do. So we're always super appreciative and thankful for it. I'm glad that you had the chance to provide all that information. So if you get this and you're listening to it and it's a little early, just go back in a week or so <laughs> and hopefully they'll have their new website up. So thank you very much for sharing that. But before we sign off today, I did want to ask, what can the foster care system do better? Of course, anybody can try to spend time slamming the system. I know there's certainly a lot of opportunities, but I like to focus on solutions. Yeah. What is it that you think that the foster care system could do better? Where are there opportunities for improvements? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are working on some of the basic needs for foster youth as far as housing, educational support, food and vehicle and transportation and things like that. There are a lot of people who are doing that. So that's, of course, something that could be done. Something I always think about is surround foster youth with people who will allow them to dream again. There's many different ways to support and give back to the system. I know a lot of foster youth who want to be social workers, and that's definitely needed and that's great. 
a lot of foster youth who want to work on policy for child welfare, and that's amazing and that's great. But if you never interacted with the foster care system, would you want to be a chef? Would you want to be an engineer? Would you want to be an astronaut, a lawyer, doctor, whatever it may be? I feel that sometimes the system rips kids of their dreams and we're stuck in a cycle of always being connected to the system. If you are a doctor, if you are a chef or whatever you want to do or be, you're still contributing to the system. You're still helping foster care youth. You're allowing them to dream again. So I want foster youth to be able to dream again and to be able to chase their goals and passions and realize that just because they're not doing work that's hands-on with foster care specifically, doesn't mean that they're not supporting other foster youth and allowing them to grow and develop as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are lots of ways, if you don't go down the road of being a social worker or something along those lines, to help foster youth indirectly and directly. But if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a teacher, you could be a CASA, right? You can bring in foster kids into your home. You can mentor. You can volunteer. Exactly. I mean, there are so many different ways that you can stay connected with the foster care system and support the young people without necessarily having to make a career out of it. And like you're saying, maybe put aside some dreams you may have once had. Exactly. Yeah. So we all have skills and we all have different things that we're doing in our lives. So just like I mentioned while I was in a group home, go to some of these facilities or contact local organizations and see how you can mentor and support. If you are a chef or an engineer, you can teach foster youth so many different skills and contribute yeah. just using the skills that you have. You don't need to even directly be a foster parent, but just pass along the information that you have Whatever you can do, I think that's extremely valuable. Exactly. And there are actually a lot of people out there who do that, and they find maybe a church is working with young people coming out of foster care, and they volunteer their time to teach auto mechanics or to help teach a young person how to drive. Or if they are really in any career, you could help them understand what that career entails, even if it's just sitting down and talking with them. So there's a lot of opportunity. So I love that. And within the foster care system itself, I think it would be encouraging maybe social workers who are so overworked, and I totally get that. But if they can have that mindset of encouraging and going back to that future perspective of can versus can't, future versus now, and so forth, if social workers all had that mindset and encouraged their young people and CASAs then we'd reach a lot more young people and hopefully maybe change the direction of their lives. That is so important. I'm glad you said that. Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I appreciate, Justin, you being part of this podcast. Unfortunately, we are at the end of our time, so I'm going to have to wrap things up. But I want to thank you so much for joining us. And please give our best to Alexis. And good luck with your baby. I wish you all the best as a new family. And of course, with the work that you're doing, I think it's amazing. No, of course, we so appreciate you allowing us to be on here and spreading this message and just having the conversation. And any ways we can contribute or support, please let us know. Okay. Well, I will do that. And I appreciate that. All right. For those of you who have listened to the end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. So you can go to our website, agingoutinstitute.org and look for the podcast link and you'll find it there. Or you can go to pretty much any of the podcast distribution sites and you'll find us there as well. So thank you very much for listening to the end. Until next time. 